0: Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby, welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about Chris Cuomo's suspension from CNN, Bob Iger's NBA hoop dreams, and the people who say they're never, ever coming back to movie theaters. After that, we'll be joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about dark money Democrats and the philanthropy industrial complex and how much power rich people really have over our elections. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Joining me now is Matt Bellany, our expert on all things Hollywood. Matt, it is officially December. We put our tree up here at the Venice Bureau just a few days ago. Have you done the same?
1: Actually, just putting the Christmas tree up today, actually. Some lights, a little garland. It feels good, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, it feels like I was just doing this 20 seconds ago last year. (laughs) I don't know where the year went, uh, but yeah, sure, it feels nice. Are you one of those people,
0: Matt, that puts your Christmas decorations away like
1: around Valentine's Day or do they go down? Oh, no, no. Immediately. 26. Last year was probably (laughs) Christmas Day evening. Like we we decorate, do the whole thing. But then the second it's over, it's gone.
0: Uh, And and what is your philosophy around when? it is appropriate to start listening to Christmas music. Do you begin Never in your household? Appro- you don't? Never okay. appropriate.
1: Okay. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it creeps in, but I'm not one of those people that seeks it out. I, I don't love it. Uh, I am a huge holiday card guy. You will. You should be expecting a little holiday cheer from me in the Venice headquarters very soon. You're gonna. You're getting a holiday card.
0: Ooh. All right, we're talking family photo, dog picture. Oh, family photo, dog, the whole thing. That's great. We were on um, Manhattan Beach the other day because it was about 80 degrees here in LA. Sorry to the rest of America over the weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, rather. And uh, we saw a a Manhattan Beach family taking their family holiday photos on the beach. And you could tell it was just such a flex to all their friends and relatives in other parts of the country. They were wearing like the mom had a billowy dress on and the dad had on like a linen shirt and they're like toe headed kids were with them in the, in the surf. And you're like, Oh God, this is, I know where this is going.
1: (laughs) Listen, I grew up in Laguna and we would used to make fun of those people who would like drive in from 20 minutes inland to do their photos at the beach. We used to like dig little holes and put, we call them tourist traps where you would try to get people to fall <laughs> in a hole when they were taking their family photos.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I hope they have relatives back in like Wisconsin who know that they're actually from Temecula. They're
1: like, you don't live by the beach. Well, people, you know, people think you live in California. You, everybody lives in a, you know, oceanfront estate uh, overlooking the water.
0: Yeah, I mean, both of us do, obviously. Of um, course, but yeah. But yeah. yeah, no one else on the puck team does. Anyway, Matt, I want to get right into... The big media news this week, which involves CNN primetime anchor, Chris Cuomo, who is the little brother everybody knows now of former disgraced New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, who had to resign in a big series of sexual harassment allegations under that cloud. And Cuomo had already apologized to CNN viewers back in August for helping his brother uh, being on strategy calls with Cuomo's team. And that obviously represented a significant conflict of interest for CNN. It violated basic journalism ethics, uh, you know. especially as the network was covering that scandal. It came out this week in the course of testimony given to the Attorney General of New York's office that was investigating the Cuomo harassment scandal. It was revealed in text messages that Chris Cuomo... Uh, Had taken on a former active role in doing damage control, even possibly chasing down a lead to discredit one of Governor Cuomo's accusers. And that didn't square with what Cuomo told CNN viewers back in August, which was, I was a passive observer here. I was not taking an active role. I was just there to listen. This contradicted that. And CNN suspended Chris Cuomo indefinitely on Tuesday of this week. So... What do, you, what do you make of all this? Like, is Chris Cuomo, what does suspended indefinitely mean in the parlance of <laughs> <laughs> TV and TV news?
1: Is that like one of those Fox News vacations where you go on vacation for a couple of weeks uh, and then you never come back? That's, I, the, I maybe. Maybe. But uh, So a couple things going on here. First, it is absolutely disingenuous what he said before because, you know, when the allegations first came out and you looked at it, you're like, okay, it is his brother It makes sense that he might call and be on strategy calls and try to help him as much as he can. He is a media professional. But this is very different. This is actively going after people that could harm his brother. This is putting CNN in a terrible place because he is a representative of that brand and yet he's going after Ronan Farrow. He's trying to figure out who's coming after his brother to discredit him. He's looking at the Time's Up people and trying to say, okay, what is their role here? How can I help my brother? That is all putting CNN his employer in a really bad place. And number of people have pointed out If this guy was not a primetime anchor, if he was a producer, a staffer, an intern, anyone else there, he would have been out. Easy decision. And what I don't understand is, you know, it's not like Chris Cuomo is Rachel Maddow and like driving ratings for the entire network. The CNN ratings and Chris Cuomo's show are in the toilet. They're terrible. And, you know, yes, there are comparisons to last year at this time where, The virus was dominating the news and the election chaos and everything like that. But just cut the ties. It's easy.
0: Yeah, I mean, so just for context around that, Cuomo primetime, Chris Cuomo primetime, uh, which launched in 2018, he came over from the morning show, actually, at CNN. They average about 775,000 viewers total right now. And only about 170,000 of those are in that advertiser-coveted demo between the ages of 25 and 54. But compare that to Fox News at 9 p.m., Hannity gets 3.2 million viewers. Maddow gets 1.9. She's obviously the jewel of MSNBC's lineup that other shows don't do as well. But yeah, I mean, these shows just don't like, rate very well these days. Um, it's, you know, some of them, I, at least I find, and disclosure, I used to work there. You know, the, the primetime lineup at CNN feels a little bit like liberal talk radio at this point. It's just a lot of panelists and, and, you know, outrage porn.
1: What you're not talking about is the age of those viewers as well, which is, you know, I don't have to tell you is usually in the late 60s, early 70s. This is not a young audience. It's getting older. I mean, I think an entire reckoning is coming for CNN. It's going through an ownership change right now. The people that are coming in at Warner Media above CNN are the Discovery Channel people. David Zasloff, who runs Discovery, has been pretty open about how he wants the journalism, is what he calls, to come back to CNN. And I don't think he means that people at CNN are bad journalists. I think what he means is that he sees CNN around the world as the most trusted name in news and what people around the world see as the news. And then he sees what's going on in America where CNN has been politicized, where it's known for these liberal leaning primetime hosts who made their name as being kind of anti-Trump and calling out the Trump administration. And I think there are some big changes coming to that. I don't think David Zasloff wants that in prime time. I don't know what he wants, but I don't think this kind of positioning of CNN being the voice of opposition to the Trump Republicans is going to change.
0: It's, it's, I'm sorry,
1: it's going to stay. It's going to change.
0: Yeah, it, it feels, and look, I, I say this with respect to My friends who are journalists and reporters who actually do reporting at CNN and MSNBC, but the tone and tenor of the hosts and specifically the primetime programs of both networks are pretty indistinguishable. It's up and down the line, you know, Republicans are all bad, you know, and it's been that way since Trump came into the office. Maybe much of that is deserved, but you know, for the <laughs> maybe 20 to 30 percent of Republican politics that is just standard issue Republican politics. You know, they treat it as a daily outrage.
1: And I, I think viewers can kind wrong. of see through that. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong. I understand why Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, did that, because when you are in an environment where Fox News is so dominant and Fox News is espousing one political argument, you know, over and over and over and is getting increasingly radicalized. There was during the Trump years, a market for the response to that. And some of the things that Trump was doing were so violating norms and, you know, all the crazy stuff that was dominating the news all the time. It made sense that CNN would become a voice of that outrage over what Trump was doing, because there was a market for that. I don't know now going into the future, whether that market is still as robust. I mean, clearly it's not because the ratings are so down. So then the question is, what do you try next? And is there a market for a more quote unquote down the middle news network? I don't know the answer to that, but I think the the positioning of CNN as the anti-Trump network is outdated and will change soon.
0: I agree. And this cuts to, well, two, two observations on this. And first of all, just to rewind a second, I just did some live calculator math on my MacBook here. Um, if we're talking about Chris Cuomo's show, 80% of the audience is over the age of 55, which is pretty common actually across cable news. This is a kind of programming that people under the age of 40, even 50, are just not tuning into. But it does have... A connection with that baby boomer demo. And, you know, if you're talking about mixing it up, you know, then you're thinking maybe we lose that audience, even though we have like a tiny sliver of a connection to an audience. What if we play with the formula and we lose that tiny audience? I mean, that's, that's the risk proposition I think is that you do have boomer libs tuning into these shows every night. There's not many of them, but is there a better formula? that can prevent them from falling off a cliff that's the that's the question
1: well, yeah and i think that's what everyone in cable news is scrambling for and they all have streaming services that they're launching cnn plus is launching in 2022 msnbc is is supposed to be programming peacock with news and you know they're trying to figure out what the 21st century of cable news looks like and until then it's just trying to grab for the slice of you know the declining pie think about cnn before trump i mean that's what under zucker it was the poop cruise and eventizing news events and going all in remember the mysterious missing plane and you know those types of things i I don't know if we're going to get a return to that but i could see a a scenario where cnn really leans into its global news infrastructure and tries to 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 create a compelling current events or news driven prime time that is not just talking heads.
0: Okay. So let me run the counterpoint at you here. I was at CNN before Jeff Zucker and for the few first few years of Jeff Zucker and worked with Zucker and uh,
1: got to know him decently well. Did you make any contributions to the poop cruise or missing plane coverage?
0: So not neither of those, but I remember actually kind of liking it because I was obviously a political reporter and I had to do these 7 a.m. political segments for the morning show with John King, who I adore. But that meant I had to get up at like 5 every day. And during those those months when we were covering poop cruises and missing planes, it was roadblocked coverage on that single topic. So there was no politics, which meant I didn't have to get up at 5 a.m. <laughs> but, you know, I I got a taste of his idea of programming, which was entertainment above all else. Zucker is has been quoted multiple times comparing politics to sports. Um, Zucker gave Donald Trump unlimited airtime in the Republican primaries in 2015. Um, He later sort of half apologizes, half apologized for that uh, because he doesn't like apologizing. But, you know, the people at CNN are loyal to Jeff Zucker because, again, before him, the network was kind of seen as listless, like the viewership wasn't great and that was a time when as much as we journalism snobs might have preferred it they did do a lot more sort of straight news a lot more international news you know i was sort of disappointed by the the trump era coverage i left in 2015 just before trump came down the elevator and was watching from a distance and you know it, it was nonstop talking punditry yelling all the time zucker hired and paid Trump-supporting conservatives to deliver lies on television. He, you know, empowered Donald Trump for a, a long time. And just bringing it all back to Cuomo, I mean, he's Zucker's also the one who greenlit the whole Chris Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, Buddy Buddy Act on television in the early days of the pandemic when the governor would come on and they would talk about mom and dad and they would shit on Donald Trump. And it was just this, like, blatant, not just a blatant violation of journalism ethics, but it really gave ammo to Republicans who've had long said that CNN is biased, well, there you go, you know? And like here you had the network giving airtime to this Democratic governor and just, you know, that looked really gross. And Zucker has actually kind of escaped a lot of blame for not just the Trump stuff, some of this Cuomo stuff. And then the fact that he went all in on Trump outrage porn all the time for four years, which was a short-term play, not a long-term play. Um, and, and we're seeing, and we're seeing the outcome of that right now.
1: Totally. I mean, Zucker is a creature of ratings ever since he you know, was the producer of the today show back in the day and rose through the ranks at NBC. He's going to do what he thinks is going to lure an audience. And I think for a certain segment of, you know, CNN loving grandmothers, the Cuomo show was an appealing proposition. Um, Again, that's a short-term play, and I think there was a lot of brand damage that was done to CNN during the Trump years in order to placate that audience that was tuning in every night for the Trump outrage of the day. And they're going to have to figure out how they move beyond that, because when you look at CNN globally, which is what the new ownership is looking at, they see a a brand that is hugely valuable. They're not going to sell, in my opinion. They see this as the news for the world. And that's a hugely valuable thing to own. You, you know, Forget money, it's influence. And the problem they have is in this country, is in America. It has been so politicized, and it's a product of the country as well, and it's a product of what the Murdochs have built with Fox News. But it's a real problem for the brand long term if you have defined yourself as only catering to 35% of the electorate. You know, if they let's say 35 percent, what is it? What are the registered Democrats? Thirty five percent? That's probably like 37. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. So you're only going after like that's the total addressable market in corporate terms here is only a third of what you could have. Like that's not that's not very good. You know, and we see CNN spikes when there are are big events. People still consider it the news. I am not a cable news watcher. But when there is uh, something big, like, you know, a global event or a big Supreme Court ruling or, you know, the George Floyd protests or something where it's like this is a real time news event, January 6th, CNN ratings go through the roof. And that is because it is still a news brand.
0: CNN is essential if you really think about it seven times a year when something like that happens and they are able to deploy Amazing reporters here and around the world to, you know, tell these stories, and and they have cameras I mean, everywhere, this Go ahead, go ahead. Like it's sort of it was bittersweet for me watching it when we were pulling out of Afghanistan. I was watching CNN. I was just going to mention that, and I was like, Clarissa Ward was there. You know, we have a great network of stringers and freelancers there, and they were just really bringing you pictures and stories that. No one else was bringing you. And it just really brought it home to me that, man, I haven't seen these foreign correspondents for years. I mean, yeah, you'd see them when, like, Trump did a trip to, like, the G7 or, like, met with Putin or something like that. But really, CNN was just punditry on television and paid contributors, like, yelling at each other. And it wasn't the kind of go there, which used to be their brand, kind of storytelling and reporting where... You have all these resources around the world and they were just barely flicked at for four or five years, except for on CNNI. like if you watch CNN International, they go around the world all the time and they have programming that, you know, feels a lot like BBC programming; It's much more
1: straight. Which is interesting because BBC is the most trusted news brand among young news consumers and consistently just because it's it's an actual news brand still. Young people, they don't care about CNN. It's what their grandma watches to hear, you know, what Trump's done today.
0: This This is a bit of a tangent, but the BBC isn't just the most trusted news brand among young people. It's the most trusted news brand in the entire world, and I believe it has to do with the fact that would be unpopular here in many newsrooms, they have straight up banned their reporters from pontificating, from delivering opinions or things that even sound like opinions on Twitter. And that creep of opinion into journalism that exists everywhere in American news now, especially cable news, really doesn't exist in the BBC. And I think they understand that their credibility is based on that. And you know, whether Zaslov thinks the same thing when he comes in and or when he mixes things up remains to be seen. But I think the journalism purists out there hope that CNN gets back a little more to purebred news gathering and expertise and credibility. But that would possibly come at the expense of ratings. And then there's an open question, in this country at least, can that even be recovered after the, the Trump years? I mean, CNN is just seen as a tool of the left now, not just thanks to Trump, but thanks to some of their own decisions. And that's that sucks for people that work there and have worked there. One more thing before we move on from the Chris Cuomo topic. I just want to add, he still has a serious XM radio show. And I just want you to guess, Matt, what the title of this show is on Sirius.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, is it uh, Watch Reflex? I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's close. It's called Let's Get After It. Which is oh, very on-brand. Just so cringy. So cringy. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to come and beat us both up, I think. Uh, you know he'd like to. Uh,
0: yeah, he yeah. or at least to just show off his deadlift. Alright, I want to move on to Bob Iger, who is soon to be leaving Disney, and Iger, you've reported, has his eyes on a second act. A third act? I don't know where he where is at in his career, but What's he looking at next after Disney? I mean, this guy's an icon.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting situation because you had a a guy who's been the CEO of the Walt Disney Company for, you know, 15 years, stepped down last year, uh, handed off to Bob Chapek, is still the executive chairman, is responsible for Disney being, you know, the largest traditional media company. It's the only one that is really up there with the Netflixes of the world in terms of market share and market cap, bought Pixar, bought Marvel, bought Lucasfilm, bought Fox. Now he's 70 years old and he's trying to figure out what he wants to do next. He's flirted with politics. There was a serious um, discussion over whether he would mount a presidential run or perhaps California governor. There was a lot of talk about him potentially being a sports commissioner. He's a big sports fan. Um, Those jobs are not exactly open right now. There was some talk about whether he would do nothing or just become an investor. I don't think that's possible. He wanted to become perhaps the ambassador to China. Um, he's been a, a Biden guy, but Biden didn't pick him. Uh, and you know, Dizzy had a lot of dealings in China and he thought he could be helpful there. What I picked up on this last couple of weeks, I wrote about this for Puck is, one scenario that's particularly interesting is that there may be an opening to buy an nba team in the next few months and Iger has told some friends that if that becomes an option he would like to put together a group potentially to buy the phoenix suns and if you don't follow basketball you probably missed this story but the owner of the phoenix suns robert sarver has been under fire in the last month or so after an espn report obviously espn owned by disney ironically espn reported that he has had a bunch of bad behavior over the years he said the n-word in front of the head coach of the suns who is black he showed, uh, passed around a picture of his wife in a bikini and asked uh, people on his staff to comment on her amazing uh, rockin' body, apparently. He said something to a female employee, asked if, if he owned her, um, just kind of, you know, sexist, misogynistic, racist stuff that was alleged in the SPN article. And because of that, the League is now investigating this owner and potentially could come back with a report that would cause the commissioner, Adam Silver, to boot this owner from the Phoenix Suns. And if that happens, then that potentially could give a venue for Bob Iger to come in and say, you know what, I would like to buy this team with a group that I put together. I don't think Iger's a Iger's quite rich enough to buy it on his own. He would have to put up probably about $2 billion. But there are plenty of partners he could bring in after a phone call or two to help him do that. And it's an interesting scenario because it could provide this this kind of soft landing or gracious exit that Iger wants from Disney in a way that would allow him to pursue something uh, cool that would allow him to stay in the sports world. And, and, uh, and I think he would love that.
0: So, like, is this what Iger would want to actually do, though? Like, does he want to be a huge power broker or does he just want to, like, own and run an NBA team? Like, is that his... You know, he's 70 years old. Is that sort of what how he wants to fade off into the sunset? Because, like, you know, Mark Cuban and Steve Ballmer, you know, they have their business brands and entities beyond basketball, but they really – their passion project is just sort of <laughs> front office at one NBA team, which feels yeah, like a I huge mean, job for anybody, but, like, for Bob Iger, who was the chairman of Disney for so long, it's like, okay, is that is that all? I mean, what else well, would he want to do? think about I
1: mean, w- when you've run the Walt Disney Company the way he has, I mean – where else do you go in corporate America? That's sort of the pinnacle, you know, of, of, unless you're a founder, which he hasn't been, but you know, I I see this as being a a similar situation to Ballmer. You know, if you remember Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft was uh, allowed to buy the Clippers only because Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers in 2014 was forced to sell after an audio tape was made public in which he made racist comments. And Donald Sterling was a notorious figure for many years. And the league was really chomping at the bit to get rid of him. And Steve Ballmer is there, you know, coming off of this very high-profile job where he made a ton of money, wanted to buy a basketball team. The Clippers became available. He swooped in and he got them for himself. Um, And that's worked out really well. He's put a lot of money into the Clippers. They're building their own new arena. Um, The team has done better under him. And I think Iger sees that and says it could be a nice – post CEO role for him. Iger's also friends with the owners of the Atlanta Hawks, very close family friends with them. And he's kind of seen what it's like to be in this club of sports owners. And it's a great place to be. I mean, these people, they have a rooting interest in something every day and they have a a business to run and it's, it's fun and exciting and you get to sit courtside and root on your investment. I think Iger would love that. He tried to buy an NFL team Back when they were um, there, there was an effort to bring an NFL team to L.A. and Iger was part of a potential ownership group there and he's always been interested in sports. You know, I've been to his office in Burbank and he had sports memorabilia everywhere. He had a a big, you know, he's a Packers fan. He had a big cheese statute that he had taken from one of the ESPN restaurants um, that he put in his (laughs) office. He's always been he's always been a big sports guy.
0: And uh, it should be noted, uh, he's also married to Willow Bay, who is lovely. And she is the dean of the Annenberg uh, School for Communication at the University of Southern California. But I know her from watching NBA Inside Stuff when I was uh, little.
1: Oh, you know what? That's such a I totally forgot about that. And I should have put that in my article about him, his connections to sports, because, of course, Willow uh, was... Ahmad Rashad and Willow Indian Bay. Host. Yeah. Totally. And, uh, and, you know, there was another... He, I don't know if he had season tickets or if he shared with someone, but he was a Clippers regular on the sideline. And I thought uh-huh. that was interesting because the Hollywood people tend to gravitate towards the Lakers and, you know, for the Showtime, for the, the CNB scene. It, it says something about Iger that he was a big fixture on the, on the Clippers sideline it says to me that he actually is a sports fan and a basketball fan.
0: Yeah. You make a choice to become a Clippers fan. Like you don't just come in cold. Okay. So we just wrapped Thanksgiving weekend. How did the box office do? This is your, this is your lane. What did, did, did we see a huge comeback for movies? Because there were a lot of big, big titles that debuted in theaters last weekend.
1: Uh, no. No no we did not I mean, the uh, the the box office was down about 46 47% from 2019 oh wow which is not good you know the short answer here is that moviegoers for the most part are not returning to theaters they are coming back incrementally for some of the bigger titles that people deem worthy to see in the theaters, things like James Bond, or, you know, some of the Marvel movies have done fine. Venom is doing really well, but for the most part ticket sales are down and it's the adult oriented movies that are being hurt the most, you know, the movies that are targeting a non teenager, non 20, 30, something crowd, you know, the, the Lady Gaga movie, House of Gucci, got to about $20 million, uh, over the five-day Thanksgiving, which is below where they wanted that movie to go. It's a $75 million movie with a gigantic global marketing campaign. Um, the Will Smith movie, King Richard, was um, kind of DOA at the box office. Now, that one is also available on HBO Max, which additionally cut into its box office. But Dune, which is also on HBO Max, is doing okay at the box office, and that's a big spectacle see it in the theater movie whereas king richard is a, an adult drama and uh people are seeing those movies at home
0: this is a dumb question but why why did you say that king richard was doa in theaters is that the reason why it's a drama and not like a marvel movie
1: no i mean nobody saw it it, it opened to like it opened to like five oh.
0: million you're saying, gotcha. You're saying no one saw not that not that it was due not that it was destined to fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha.
1: No, 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 no. I mean, actually, the r- reviews are great, and Will Smith is probably going to get an Oscar.
0: So what what was the top grossing Thanksgiving movie then?
1: It was Encanto, the Disney oh. movie that grossed about forty million bucks, which is about half what the Disney movie uh, Wreck It Ralph two Ralph breaks the Internet about half what that grossed on a similar weekend in 2018. So that tells you where the box office is in Encanto, at least some kids did go back to theaters. I think vaccinations probably helped there. Um, There hadn't been a, a kids movie of any size or scope that was released directly to theaters without a streaming option. And people wondered if kids would go back at all. Some did my, we, my kid, we took my kid to see it. He loved it, but the box office is just not to where the studios want it to be or where they're accustomed to it being. And I think going into the new year, you're gonna see more experiments with streaming, with releasing on the same days as uh, as it's in theaters, it goes to the streaming service or very shortly after. And you know, I, I just don't know when we can expect things to get back to normal, especially with the new variant. So if, I ever, assume... if ever is the question. You know, there was there was a study that was released this week. That showed that almost 10% of moviegoers are not going back. They say they they are now lost. They call them. They're not going back to theaters even when coronavirus and COVID-19 are behind us. They say I don't I don't know if I totally believe that, but there, this this study showed that there are big hurdles for getting people to come back to theaters.
0: Yeah, if a poll says 10% of people are hard nosed, there's on top of that absolutely marginal losses beyond just that 10% of people who are just like their habits have changed and I'll say, sure, I'll go to a movie, but like, they're just not going in the same way. And I, I, I'm probably one of them.
1: But I also believe that there are people, you know, if you say you're not going to go back, there's probably something that could get you back to theaters. Are you, are you telling me you're not going to see Top Gun 2 when it comes out?
0: I mean, I still want to go see, I saw the French dispatch. I want to see, I mean, these are the movies I like. I want to see (laughs) James Bond. I want to see House of Gucci. I mean, sure, I will go. I'm just saying that because it's not essential in our lives anymore, because you can wait six weeks or two months and it'll be on HBO Max. You know, King Richard's a good example. Like, that's a movie that some of my friends have talked about that I want to go see in 2015. I would have probably made the time at some point to go see that in a movie theater. And like, now I'm not going to do that because it's right there. Yeah. You know on hbo next to succession
1: and that's the thing is i i I think hbo they probably added a lot of subscribers because of this movie initiative of putting all their movies on on the service for 2021 but they've also lost a lot of money they lost a lot of money from me personally i probably would have gone to see four or five warner brothers movies this year in the theater including king richard and dune i watched them at home i was already an hbo subscriber they did not get any additional money from me. Yet they probably lost a couple hundred bucks in movie tickets for me this year, and that's the really unfortunate situation that these studios are in because of uh, what's what's happened with COVID.
0: The programming that people were watching over Thanksgiving, I think we both agree, and you were in Mississippi for the Egg Bowl as we discussed last week, was football, college, and especially NFL. How how? Good are NFL numbers right now. I mean, they, they just feel do- as dominant as ever.
1: It, more dominant. It's crazy, these numbers that the football season is putting up. Um, you know, obviously, things were depressed last year because there were no fans in many stadiums, but things have roared back ratings-wise. There were 37 million people watch the Cowboys game on Thanksgiving. I mean, those are numbers that you just don't see in any other context anymore, and they're up. You know, Nielsen has has instituted a new people counting metric that accounts for out-of-home viewing. So that's juicing things, I think, a little bit. But when you're seeing viewership in the 30s, you know, that those are numbers that cannot be achieved by anything else, even in the sports world. The World Series does not get those numbers. You know, the NBA final, nothing gets those numbers except football. And it's putting the NFL in perhaps the biggest poll position in the media world right now. It's just the only thing that rates.
0: Yeah. I mean, even like dumpy Monday night football games are pulling, you know, 12, 13 million viewers for ESPN. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) it's just, even if it's just on the background, it's just part, it's a, it's ritualistic at this point for people in this country.
1: Listen, the NFL has been really smart about how they dole out these rights. It, every game feels like an event they have great production partners fantasy i think has done a lot to juice ratings because the fantasy platforms are so robust people are invested in the outcomes even if they don't like their their you know the teams that are playing everything is is really the nfl for all of its it's faults and there are a lot and you know you can make arguments about the way the owners treat their players and the way the owners uh, you know have exerted their power but the product on the field and the way it's presented Is very very strong.
0: Yes, the product on the field, especially as it relates to the Washington football team, uh, is very very strong.
1: (laughs) They did they win last night?
0: Yeah, baby. All right, they did win. Yeah, yeah. Uh, To quote Marty Schottenheimer, the Redskins are on a fucking roll. (laughs) Sorry, Uh, you know what? You mean Washington football team? The
1: Washington football Washington football team. Eric, bleep that out. Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, you've been you've been caught. All right, so you know, the the, the interesting thing with the NFL is how they're going to transition to the streaming world because they know that the ecosystem of people that are signed up to the cable bundle is going down, down, down. Eventually it will catch up with the NFL, not this year or next year, but eventually they're gonna have to figure it out. And they're already flirting with different experiments. You know, the CBS games are available on Paramount Plus. They have packages that are with Amazon. The Sunday ticket, is likely going to go to, well, I shouldn't say likely, Amazon is bidding aggressively for the Sunday ticket package. And eventually, I think we will see a transition over to streaming for the NFL. But right now, and for the foreseeable future, the NFL is getting the biggest audience it could possibly get via the cable bundle, and they're going to stick with that.
0: Or uh, maybe they should just uh, CNN should just go all in on NFL rights that will save the network. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't see that happening. Although Jeff Zucker, who's running CNN, is now also in charge of Turner Sports, he so is. maybe he'll maybe he'll try to swing that. I don't think I don't think they uh, those rights. I mean, I don't. We don't need to talk about the cost of those rights, but it's a lot.
0: Yeah, Jeff is a big NFL fan. He's a Dolphins, big Dolphins guy.
1: Hmm. Why is he from Miami?
0: Uh, I believe he is from Miami. Yeah, he's from Homestead. Um, so that's why he's a big Miami sports fan and, and a real one. Like he's not, he's not like passive. Like he's kind of like Iger, like he, he knows about the Miami Dolphins, (laughs) which is a sad place. to be. Is there a
1: Miami sports bar in New York that people go to?
0: There's gotta be. I mean, I went to a, like a Bengals sports bar in New York, so there's gotta be a Miami one.
1: It used to be in LA before they brought teams back that there were NFL bars for almost every team. You know, like there was a bar in Santa Monica that was a Pat's bar. There was a place in in Venice that was a Steelers bar.
0: No, that's true for college as well. I mean, Jameson's over here in Santa Monica is the LSU bar. And people come from all over L.A. to watch LSU games at oh, really? Jameson's huh. in Santa Monica, which is pretty funny. Yeah. But think like, you could find that one for funny. Ole Miss. You could find one for, you know, UVA football, probably, which I will not be attending. Anyway, Matt, thanks so much, man. We'll see you next week. Coming up, I talked to Teddy Schleifer about how Democrats have become the party of dark money. As Chris Cuomo would say, let's get after it. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only insiders know, the real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. A bunch of you have told us you like the podcast, so that must be true. And I'm confident you'll like everything else we do too. When you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters, to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at www.puck.news. Welcome back, everybody, to The Powers That Be. I'm joined now by Teddy Schleifer, uh, America's, foremost expert on the influence of money in politics. And I will say on that note because we're going to get into a conversation about many different threads around this topic, but I would say 10 years ago the money in politics beat was something that you know, every news organization invested in. I mean like the New York Times, Post, Politico, CNN, like you had people who understood how to read campaign finance reports and understood the difference between like a 501 C3 and a 501 C4 and could talk about Super PAC and Citizens United. And I do feel like that beat has sort of faded a little bit, which has obviously created a big lane for you. But it it seems like it's faded in in a sense because the nature of money in politics has changed so much. So much of it now is small dollar donations coming into Not just Donald Trump, but, you know, AOC on the left, you know, people with followings and Stan culture. You know, it's easy for Marjorie Taylor Greene to say something insane and provocative and raise three million dollars in a day uh, just from her email list, from social media, whatever, texting. And then that whole era of Citizens United, when the Koch brothers were launching these secretive groups and spending tons of money and Sheldon Adelson was doing the same thing. That stuff is still happening; it's still important. But it feels like, in some ways, all of the formal entities, the legal entities that were created to funnel money into politics, have taken a back seat, either to small-dollar donations or what you've been writing about lately, which is the sort of fuzzy line between philanthropy and political activism. And you—you you had a big scoop sure. actually uh, a few days ago about how Jeff Bezos <laughs> is giving hundred million dollars to the Barack Obama Foundation. That's right. That's, you know what, what that's not necessarily to help a Democrat win a competitive district in Ohio, but it's also not, not politics. So like, when did this trend start happening? Because you have a big piece up this week about the Democrats, dark money machine. They, that the democratic party now feels more like the <laughs> secretive money party in a way that the Republicans did, Six ten
2: years ago, you're totally right. I mean, I don't know if this world was always that well covered, but you know, if you roll back the clock to 2010, you know, the first election after Citizens United, um, you know, you may remember Barack Obama uh, speaking before a joint session of Congress, worrying about foreign money flooding in, and there's like all this hoopla and concern and just general paranoia about all these rich people. Foreign and domestic are going to show up and buy American elections. And, and little did we know, I think you can make a good argument 10 years later that their power has been overstated. Um, let's talk about, you know, Mike Bloomberg spends a billion dollars, gets like six votes in American Samoa, Donald Trump way outspent in 2016. Who cares? This most recent cycle, you know, obviously Biden raised a lot of money from rich people, but. You know, in a lot of ways, 2020 showed that you can be Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, whomever. And you could, if you have these, you know, the stand culture, raise a shitload from just regular mom and pops. So it makes for a less sexy story for sure that like, oh, well, maybe you don't need, you know, the Sheldon Adelson funding Newt Gingrich way past uh, his prime to to make it in American politics. But these people are still important. Like, I, I feel like they're also the other part of the story is that they're just getting much savvier. At staying behind the curtain, like what what worked in 2012 was, you know, you fund some super PAC that Karl Rove tells you to fund or that Jim Messina tells you to fund. Today, people start their own groups. They, you know, hide their money in a charitable foundation that funds, quote unquote, non political work, which we all know is political, or they give it to a 501c4. You're you're totally right that I think everyone has gotten much better at keeping this hush hush which obviously is also influenced by the fact that a lot of people hate these rich guys, right? Bernie supporters, Warren supporters, they're absolutely despised. So if you're out front in front of the camera like you were in 2012, it doesn't quite work as well. Yeah, I mean, even
0: even politicians hate having to meet with and schmooze donors. I mean, there's one million scenes in Veep where Selena has to like suck up to some idiot donor who's got a pet theory about tax law. I mean, in, in, uh, you know, it was reported after 2012. I think this was in the book that the disgraced Mark Halperin and, and then John Heileman wrote double down where Obama had to meet with George Soros and sort of beg him to put money into some outside groups. And Obama was just like left being like, fuck, I hate this guy. He's so tedious. Like, you know, but you still have to kiss the ring to get, get that kind of money. And part of, I have, a, I have a little bit of a theory about why some of this has changed too, which is that, I want you to pressure test this, but again, in the Citizens United era, if Carl Rove, as you mentioned, went to a donor and said, give to this super PAC, or Mitch McConnell said the same thing, the political game has changed so much since then. So Back then, for example, that super PAC would take that money, and then that super PAC would have a media strategist and a media buyer and somebody from the constellation of approved strategists to cut a bunch of television, radio, maybe mail pieces. And that's how they would run the campaign. Now so much of getting a message out and so much of winning campaigns is about getting a message out on social media, you know, short form video tweets, like Facebook ads, whatever, and just winning the earned media battle every day. And so all of the formalities of like running a campaign and winning a campaign have just changed so much over time that like maybe the usefulness of even giving to super PACs has changed. I don't know. I mean, I, I just like there are softer ways to exercise political power than just paid media now. And I think that's one reason why these donations are taking on a different form.
2: Well, I think they're, you're, you're right that the the efficacy of this money is totally in question right like i mentioned bloomberg a second ago theoretically if it was all about just funding uh existing groups to the max like you know mike bloomberg should be president so part of it is that but also i mean i I do think that the the super PAC world is different than it was in in 2012 right where there was kind of you know on the democratic side there's priorities usa right which was the group that says that Mitt romney you know killed your mother please fund 100 million dollars of ads on this and there was the carl rove groups in 2012 on the republican side um, now it's just like a total hodgepodge of everything from credible to less credible to desperately seeking to remain credible. And you know, like I mean, I think you know the the ad world has shifted to digital. Obviously, probably not as much as it should have. And and those things still cost money. I mean, like obviously, one of the in Trump world there are savvy digital operatives who run either scam packs or super packs or, or something and those things do hoodwink donors into funding them. So the mo- the money is ending up in the system. It's not necessarily ending up on TV, but I mean, elections have gotten more expensive since 2012, not less. I think it was 15 billion last cycle. No, that's true. That's true. And that, I was just thinking about, as you mentioned, Bloomberg, one of the
0: I don't regret many of the pieces I've written because mostly brilliant, obviously. But one of the one of the things I regret the most was writing for Vanity Fair before joining the illustrious puck cabal that we're in now, there was a moment when it looked like Bernie and Bloomberg were the final two in that Democratic primary. And I wrote something that said Bloomberg was built to last, outlast Bernie because of the money and the organization. And it really went against like, I was just like, itching to write a take. It had been a while since I filed a story and that's like a bad reason to write a story. And I regret we, it. We a lot. have all been there. Yeah, totally. And I, I was just like, that went against all of my instincts, all of the things I think about campaigns now and, and, and social media and, and how to reach voters. And it was stupid. <laughs> like pay, like having that much money can it can buy you an election on a local level. I still think now, but you know, presidential senate it's a much tougher to do that just by being a rich guy you need to have a message that is larger than just tactics but on that note how who are the big donors now like who are the people in the democratic universe that are the real heavy hitters that are either spending their own money or or giving money to democratic groups
2: so i mean i'm recording this from san francisco uh, which i moved to in 2017 and i feel like the you know, the, the the power center has shifted out here. Um, you know, you mentioned George Soros. Like, Soros is still a relevant player, but, like, he's not the 500-pound gorilla that he was in 2012. Like, Obama is not, you know, dependent so dependent uh, on Soros. And, like, the story over the last five years, right, has been all of these people who spend a lot of money on politics. You know, a lot should be in quotes, though, because the amount of money they spend is still – I'm always surprised there's not more spent. I'll put it that way. You know, the the if you believe that Trump was, you know, the worst threat of all time to American democracy, like, isn't that more than a hundred million dollar problem? It's probably a two hundred million dollar problem or three hundred million dollar problem. And the amount of money that is spent is actually as uh, I think it was John Boehner, who tried to minimize the, the concerns from from the left about money in politics by saying it's less than Americans spend on toothpaste or something like that. So, look, a lot a lot of these people could be spending more. I mean, the, the main players are, are, are still. Are still the tech guys, you know? It's 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 Tom Steyer, though he's not in tech, but he's out here in San Francisco. Um, it's Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, probably spent a gazillion dollars last cycle. Still is. It's it's Carl who's a, a new figure I, on the scene. I wrote about a couple months ago. Um, it's Dustin Moskovitz, the founder, one of the founders of Facebook. But there's always just like new rando people who show up and fun stuff. Like this morning, I was talking with uh, a VC who. People have heard of. And, you know, he he was saying that, like, he, you know, is trying to decide whether or not he wants to keep doing this stuff. I think lots of these tech donors are not sure if they want to stick around in all candor. Um, They feel like they don't really like politics. Unlike George Soros, you know, they they find this to be maybe distasteful, maybe uh, not as innovative as, you know, their scintillating work at their AI startup. And they don't, they don't really want to do it anymore. And I think one of the big questions for the party and for all of the people who suck on the teeth that is big donors is whether or not there's going to be more money to come or whether or not these donors feel like mission accomplished, moving on. So look, I mean, ultimately, there's, there's enough rich people in America that they can find someone else to pay their salary. But there's, there's I don't know, I, I hear a lot of trepidation about whether or not the tech set is going to sign up for the next five years.
0: I sort of hear those rumblings as well. Obviously the the tech world sometimes looks down on politics and you know this is like a common thing that people say about politics these days, but you know, back in the Kennedy era, the quote unquote best and the brightest, and I know that's a pejorative term, but the best and the brightest would go into government. And now it's like the best and the brightest want to go to Stanford and work in tech and like not run for Congress. That sounds lame. But a dynamic I noticed moving from D.C. And, and New York out to California is that I do feel like there's two kinds of money people in the tech world. And one of those groups are sort of sneered at by cynical political operatives in Washington. And, and the other group is, you know, a little more respected. And the, the former group are the people who are like just rich guys who like want to have a super PAC as a plaything or think that they can like solve gerrymandering you know and like it's like that
2: feels like a little bit of a fool's errand um and then it's basically like you're doing like a mad lib it's like i rich person will solve issue x by date y um, yeah, that, you could you could write like 80 percent of my stories with that bot. <laughs> exactly. Um, <it's> like... <laughs> but, you know, the 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 savviest fundraisers
0: will still go to those people and try to convince them to put their money into more urgent need. Sure. Um, and and look, I mean, like Reid Hoffman is a good example. Um, you know, I, I think he's on the board of Higher Ground Labs, for example, which is based here in Los Angeles. And, and that's run by Shamik Dutta, who is a former Obama fundraiser. He's a, he's a friend of mine, too. But. Their goal is basically to, like, help innovate in the political tech space with platforms and tools that can help with voter contact and messaging. And basically, like, Democrats need to improve their tactical technological infrastructure. And, like, he has to and they have to go to donors and be like, here's a way where you can put your money and actually change campaigns and win campaigns rather than just saying, like. Uh, you know, we're going to fix gerrymandering or get rid of the Supreme Court and like things that feel more like pie in the sky, like Twitter errands.
2: Right. But there's also an element of, of you know, the, the, maybe these are cynics who who find like a lot of the pie in the sky technological breakthroughs to be you know, elusive. Right. I mean, like I certainly Hierogun Labs is a great example. Like, I mean, they have critics for sure. There's also like a type of rich person who I think feels that politics is not the way, you know, whether it's a technological innovation or a campaign innovation, who is like not is not the best way to solve, you know, world hunger or whatever problem du jour they, they think is important. And and to to defend that point of view for a second, you know, this this VC I was talking with this morning, I asked him, like, you know, would you uh have cared if Mitt Romney was president in 2012? And he's like, no, I, you know, I wouldn't have spent you know any millions of dollars on it. And like I think for a lot of these people, Trump was a moment in time and, they, you know, this person I was talking with cares more about the future of San Francisco and they care more about homelessness issues. And and like to them, it's like, why why am I spending $10 million on whether it's a technological innovation or a super PAC or, or whatever? And they believe that like their philanthropic work is more important. And look, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't necessarily. Think that they're wrong um, because politics, like, is the, is their life going to be that much different with Joe Biden as president versus Ron DeSantis as president? Like for the for that point of for that type of donor, this is a Trump phenomenon, and Trump is gone, and now they can go back to, you know, fixing American public schools with their ingenuity and Silicon Valley genius.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Honestly, that's the reason Matthew McConaughey said he wasn't going on for governor of Texas, not to use him as an example. But, you know, he did this little video and he said, is in his typical McConaughey way, is politics the way for me to like help society or can I like work more closely with Foundations and activists who are doing like provable work to fix certain things in our society, you know, again, like I don't know how in the weeds McConaughey is on any of this stuff, but it's a really important distinction. Extremely like what's the usefulness of politics for a lot of people uh, outside of local issues? I mean, I, I, I continue to think that local issues are matter more to a lot of people in real life, not on Twitter, than some of the stuff that happens in Washington.
2: But, but here's the thing I think you know I have, I have a story on, on Puck this week. These worlds are, are getting blended uh, into, into a smoothie that uh, folks would not be able to imbibe. Politics and philanthropy are just so like even the words I feel like mean absolutely nothing anymore. And like like you know, let's take uh, Mike Bloomberg this morning announced he was spending 750 million dollars to push charter schools across the country. Like is that politics? Is that philanthropy? It's just like I feel like so much of like the charitable industrial complex has gotten inherently so political where like I understand if you know you or I give $20 to a soup kitchen. Like I don't think we're like trying to cure world hunger. We're just doing it because we think it makes impact on the world. But I think on the left, what we've seen, especially and, and the right's been doing this forever for forever, so I don't want to like both sides of this too much. But what the left is doing is, is new where. Wealthy people make donations to, quote, unquote, philanthropic entities that are basically political projects. And there's like a wink and a nod here in this world. Where, What's an example of that? Yeah. OK, let's take something called the Voter Participation Center, which was a major nonprofit, very popular with Silicon Valley donors over the last year or two. It raised something like 90 million bucks, doubled in size, I think, uh, compared to its most recent election year. The Voter Participation Center is registering Primarily Democratic voters. It is helmed by the former, I think, head of the DSCC, uh, former aide uh, to Steve Bullock. It is funded by Democratic donors. Like it's a it's a five C three. It's a philanthropy. They you know they say well we're just trying to expand the electorate. But like everyone is sort of in on the joke. It feels like you know where another example is Democrats have started funding five hundred one C four groups, which are advocacy organizations. But are technically nonprofits that then make contributions in turn to super PACs. And in fact, to, to tie this all together, sometimes you will see a five hundred one C three, so a nonprofit, whether it's your soup bank or uh, the voter participation center or whatnot. The C three makes a donation to a C four, and then the C four makes a donation to the super PAC. So ultimately, like that's why I said it, it's this disgusting smoothie where the lines have just gotten absolutely blurred. And, and Democrats, I guess, are, are learning from Republicans. You know, I used to cover kind of Coke world closely and like nothing's enforced. You know, the IRS is beleaguered and is barely kind of looking behind any doors at this point. Uh, so I kind of feel like everyone can get away with it. And maybe, maybe that's not good for like democracy or not good for transparency. Uh, but ultimately, I think the rules are, are have gotten to the point where anyone can basically get away with anything. So my sense is that this problem is going to get worse, not better.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was looked at the Voter Participation Center uh, and like their president and CEO is this guy Tom Lopatch. I don't. I've never met L- him. Low Patch. Uh, yeah. Low Patch. He was chief staff to see Bullock from Montana. But you know, a lot of people in D.C. don't figure out how to make money after they're busting their balls in their 20s and 30s, and then a lot of people do in a one way, increasingly that, and you know, to Tom's credit, he appears to have done this. Is you. Attach yourself to a donor or a series of donors and you can create these organizations. You can make a lot of money yourself doing that. Um, When I was covering this more day to day, you know, a coveted job on the Republican side was to be a quote unquote guy. Like you were a guy for a big donor. Sheldon Adelson had a guy named Andy Abud Everyone's got a guy. Yeah. And like Andy Abud would talk to the press. He would dole out the leaks. He would do the media or. Do the media buys or hire the media buys, and like he got paid handsomely for doing that, and that was a good job in politics. You didn't have to answer to a party committee or the public. You just did politics for a rich guy, and that's becoming more and more of a thing on the left, which is exactly what you're reporting on. Right yeah,
2: right? all 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 these people have guys, um, and they're always guys. Um, okay, there's some there's some women in this world, but few, um, and obviously all the like all almost all the major donors are men. Also, it's very male world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, these people can be power brokers, kingmakers. And like oftentimes I think one of the confusing elements of being the guy is like it's unclear whether or not you're the guy or the guy's guy, because sometimes you become the actual guy where people just think you're the guy because you represent the actual guy. And therefore, like people bow down to you. Like, I mean. Whether it's reporters or other donors, like lots of these guys are freelancing oftentimes and it's like unclear if they're really representing the agent or not. But look, politics is a big business for a lot of these people, whether you're like deal- dealing with ad buys or you're, you know, if you're like a, a, a CEO of you know, a major progressive foundation, like I know you work for a quote unquote nonprofit, which makes you think that you're, you know, coming hat in hand down the church pews. Like several of these people (laughs) make hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, it's it's all public information. You look at the foundation filings. These people make hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not like, you know, they can make millions. So there is there's a whole world of tax exempt Uh, progressive nonprofit dumb that is actually part of the big money infrastructure. And that's sort of the point of my piece is like people use the word philanthropy in in a way that I think is totally divorced from reality. Real people, when they hear that word, they think you're just, you know, a do-gooder at the soup kitchen. But the lines between philanthropy and politics have been completely obliterated to the point where, you know, if someone says they work in philanthropy, you should double check it. (laughs)
0: There's also a very important soft skill of cozying up to rich people and gaining their favor. (laughs) Some people are good at it. Yeah. And you can make a lot of money doing that. The last thing I want to ask you, Teddy, and this relates to something you reported actually a few weeks back, but I think our audience will be interested in this, is the vice president, Kamala Harris, spoke to the closed door democracy alliance a few weeks ago. The Democracy Alliance has this mystique. They do a a good job of creating an air of mystery around them. If you work in politics, you kind of know who they are and what they are. But can you just, like, take us into the room? Like, when Kamala Harris goes to speak to the quote-unquote Democracy Alliance, like, is this a sinister kind of gathering of power brokers like the one we saw in Succession a couple weeks ago, (laughs) at least on the Democratic side? Or is it, you know, just a bunch of, like, wannabe to be powerful rich people kind of kissing up to a politician who is
2: then asking them for money like what what happens in that room it's actually not nearly as uh as interesting as you think it is and that's partially because of cell phones i mean at the end of the day uh i mean the romney video um from from several years ago i think every politician knows that everything they do is being recorded even though lots i mean uh, lots of uh kind of fundraising events it's almost standard practice now for people's for donors to be asked to leave their phone in a cubby um, when you enter an event um, or it's not certainly not unusual for that to happen. But like, look, I mean, we, we kind of saw this during the 2020 Democratic primary where lots of candidates savvily started inviting in reporters to basically make this thing seem not nearly as interesting as you think it was. And you'd read the pool reports from these fundraisers and you'd be like, wow, they just gave their stump speech and there are some like chumps who just paid 10,600 bucks to hear what you could have streamed on C-SPAN. So so what did Kamala Harris say at DA? I don't actually know, but I highly doubt it was actually interesting. Don't worry, people. And and you see this like increasingly, like, you know, I, I, I used to cover the Cokes. The Cokes also started inviting in reporters to their annual seminars in colorado springs because you know reporters like well a reporters just started showing up like ken vogel i feel like was tossed from (laughs) like more more coke seminars than actually happened it feels like um and you know there's a definitely some you know it makes you feel cool to get tossed from things i've been tossed from things because i'm i'm very cool um
0: ken definitely tweeted every time he got tossed out of a Koch Brothers event, I feel like, <laughs> 30 under 30
2: for getting tossed from uh, <laughs> political fundraisers. I am on the list. No, but look, so I mean, like, ultimately, the Kochs are very smart to start in an and reporters. DA, or as it's called for people who want to feel like they're in on the scene, um, the DA should do the same thing. I think I think it would make them seem really not as interesting because there there is there is a cost to it. Right. Which is like Kamala Harris speaking at the closed door democracy alliance. You know, is she secretly controlling Joe Biden? You know, you go to the Coke network and you like meet donors and you're like, oh, these are just like old rich white guys. It's really not as interesting as and look, look, the, the opponents, like the opponents of the donors have a vested interest in making them seem like puppeteers. Like, you know, the the left, obviously, Harry Reid made Charles and David Koch seem like monsters quite successfully. And Republicans over the last couple of years have like started to do the same thing with D.A. Um, you know, I guess, you know, Soros has been dogged by these things for forever. But I think they've done increasingly a good job of tarring the entire left billionaire world. And every, look, everyone's learning from each other. It's like they realize, oh, shit, Harry Reid did a good job at making our rich people look like, you know, monsters. Let's go make their people look like monsters. And that's why I think it would be savvy for all of these donor networks and wealthy people to just bring a lot more of this stuff in front of the camera obviously i am totally talking my book here because that would be great for me but (laughs) i assure you it would also be great for them so keep the leaks coming everybody
0: having either been smuggled into fundraisers sometimes off the record sometimes not i've also been given as you have like leaked audio that a source like Sent to you. I mean, sometimes the Mitt Romney forty-seven percent thing happens, sure. But usually, 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 it's like on message but said clumsily. Yeah, yeah, they're just more conversational. They're like, it's the end of the day. Like they're among supporters and no media, so maybe they stumble over something. But usually, it's like I've been inside a. I I remember I was at the DNC in twenty sixteen in Philly, and like snuck into a. Democratic room, I forget the, fu- the fundraising event, and Kamala Harris, then senator, was, um, or was she running for
2: Senate then? I forget. She would have been run, running at 16.
0: Yeah, so she would have been running for Senate. And like, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm in a secret room with rich Democrats, and I wonder what Kamala's going to say. And it was just like, really boring. <laughs> so sometimes, it, sometimes it's newsy, most of the time it's not. Um, but, uh, you know, the Democracy Alliance still has that aura of, You know, sinister, like plotting. And sometimes, look, sometimes plots are hatched at those things. I mean, I've been at Republican and Democratic events, like for campaigns, super PACs, like the RGA, soft money things. And like, yeah, like people might go into a hotel room and like make a plan or people might hatch an idea over drinks. But usually, like, those are the moments where there's not like a candidate in a big room and reporters aren't around. Correct. Correct. So they're still interesting. Um,
2: but we find out about those things after the fact. I assure you the like, you know, Milwaukee doctor is not asking Mitt Romney a really hard question uh, at the, you know, Wisconsin RNC finance event. Like like the, 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 the plots, if they're made, are made on, on the sidelines, on the margins of these things. They're not made uh, at actual fundraising events. Again, if you ever have a question
0: about politics, just refer to Veep because the interactions in Veep are actually what they look like in real life. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Teddy. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.